Well, good morning, good morning. Welcome to Convergent Church. I see a lot of new faces. Just want to welcome you all. My name's Jameson. I'm one of the pastors here. If it's your, if it's your first time here, as Larry said, we're just a bunch of uh, pretty sinful people. Hopefully, we're an inviting group of sinful people who serve an unfailing and holy God. If it's your 50th or 60th time here, it's good to see you, fam. I love you. I'm excited to preach this morning. Um, currently, if you're coming for the first time, you're catching us in the middle of our Summer in the Psalms series. Um, previously, before summer, we walked through the first three chapters of the Gospel of John, but for the summer, we kind of wanted to just take a break and be able to preach sermons that were sort of, I guess you might say, on the pastor's heart, or things that we felt like perhaps we needed to address, or, or things that uh, people in our church had said, hey, we would love for you to preach about this particular thing. And we couldn't think of any book that could really answer life's questions better than the Psalms. And so that's where we're at. And today I'm kind of taking a bit of a leap. Um, I'm preaching on a topic that I'm certainly no expert in at all. Um, it is an area of my life that I seem to ha habitually blunder and make numerous, probably constant daily mistakes in. And the area of life I'm speaking about this morning is, of course, the area of parenting. I see some smiles. I'm glad there's lots of families here today. I don't believe it's an understatement to say that other than perhaps marriage, the day-to-day -day burden of parenting well is perhaps the most significant challenge that many of us face. It certainly is no different for me just because I'm a pastor. I'm not a professional Christian by any means. And it was precisely my failings as a father, my failings as a parent, that really prompted me to preach this sermon this week. Now, um, I start my week off every Monday with a, a pretty special way. So every Monday at 8 o'clock, my good friend David comes to my house, and he sits on my couch, um, and we drink coffee. It's black because we're trying to watch our figures. No sugar, no cream, just black. And we talk about issues of life. We talk about parenting and marriage and work and our faith and how we're feeling about our walk with Christ this week. And when we're done, we kneel before God and we pray that God would aid us in his goodness and make us better husbands and, and make us better workers and make us better fathers and ultimately make us more like Christ towards our families. And this last week, David sat on my couch, and he asked me if everything was okay in my home. And, and for a moment, he could probably sense there was, a, there was a bit of a hesitation, a bit of a pause in me. And I reluctantly said, no, my friend, everything's not okay in my home. And I confessed to David um, how the night before my son Israel was struggling to get to sleep. It was just one of those nights where it seemed like I was up and down the stairs. Can anybody relate to that? Constantly. Yeah, and he's, he's laughing. <laughs> but up and down the stairs over and over again. He was thirsty, he was hungry, he was itchy, he was scared, he wanted his brothers, he wanted anything but to go to sleep. <laughs> you know, I went upstairs one more time and I asked my son, I said, why won't you go to sleep? And he looked at me and he said, with an exasperated look on his face, he said, I can't. And finally, with my patience depleted, though, in hindsight, I should have really prayed for more. I yelled at my son, Israel. I yelled at him very loudly, so loudly that it probably shook the walls of his room. 
And I know I scared him deeply. And that, and that evening I broke his fragile seven-year-old heart and I gave over to wrath and frustration. And ultimately in that moment, I was only concerned with, with my feelings, not what it would do to him. And I did not display the character of a, a heavenly and loving father and a, a sacrificial savior in Jesus who both have mercy upon me daily when I fail. And I've since repented to my son, which is why he can laugh this morning. <laughs> we had a conversation. Um, I even asked his permission to share this story with him, with our people this morning. So he's in the know, so don't worry. We're not embarrassing him this morning. But I repented to my son. I repented to God. I asked forgiveness to my wife and my family. But after I made this, this serious error in my parenting, I sat down before God with my head in my hands, and I ask God the question that I'm hopefully going to try and struggle through answering this morning. And it's a simple question, and it's, why is parenting so hard? Why is parenting so hard? If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Psalm 127 with me, please. I'd like to show you three considerable mistakes that I believe this psalm warns us not to commit, that our parenting might go from a bless, a burden to a blessing. So here's the first mistake. And I believe it's important that we review our mistakes. So often we feel we grow when we have successes, but we often grow deeply when we review our failures. So the mistake, number one, that I feel we often make in our parenting is building on the wrong principles. The psalm is written by King Solomon, and he writes this in verse 1. He says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Now, in the Old Testament, that word house is often used to refer to one's family. King Solomon is not speaking about the physical structure of a home, but he's talking about the people who live inside a home and the atmosphere that makes up a home. As parents, and, and me speaking as a husband and father, especially husbands and fathers, we should concern ourselves in all areas of our family's health. We must diligently observe and concern ourselves with all of the things that are happening in our homes and work towards our wife and children's prosperity. Hard work is certainly a staple for a thriving home. I don't want anyone to leave today saying, Pastor Jameson said, don't work to make our homes healthy. That's the opposite of what I'm saying. Hard work is important. And as I look at my own life and in my own fatherhood, it's often that my frustrations flare when I feel that I am working hard, I'm discerning the needs of my wife and my children, I am sort of on the grind to build my family in a way that I believe is pleasing to the Lord, but it seems that nothing at all seems to be going right. Can anybody relate to that? Okay. There never seems to be enough time there never seems to be enough patience in my own heart. There never seems to be enough contentment in my home. There always seems to be a need that dad cannot meet. There's a quarrel that I ultimately cannot solve. And there's restless hearts that I cannot seem to calm. But Solomon gives us three principles on which I believe we should build our homes. And the, the first is this. It's humble prayer. The humility of prayer. 
Solomon asks us to consider the futility of working our fingers to the bone, grinding to make sure that we have an admirable family, laboring to see sort of economic prosperity for our homes, providing for every need and desire without the acknowledgement that true success, true stability, true prosperity come from God and his help alone. Solomon says the Lord must build the house. If not, our human efforts, our diligence to produce a healthy, thriving home will ultimately end in nothing but vanity. It's the presence of God and the hope in God in the home that ultimately is sort of the nails that keep the home together, that keep it from splintering apart. God is the sure ground upon which we can build our family's foundations. Husbands and fathers, our wives and children need to be pointed to one who is greater than us. One who can truly meet every need, resolve every problem. Who can minister to every broken heart. The first thing we must do is in humble prayer, we must lead our family to behold Jesus. They must see him. Jesus, whom God's word calls the cornerstone of God's house. It's with Jesus at the center of our families, holding our families together, anchoring our home that produces true prosperity. As I mused on this psalm, I thought, what, you know, what does it matter if my children have a comfortable and, and happy life, if they have no hope in the life to come? What does it matter if they are wise enough to start a business and thrive, but they are not humble enough to see their need for a savior? What does it matter if they can memorize the Pythagorean theorem, if they cannot memorize or have no scripture hidden in their hearts to help them confront doubt and temptation and sin. The first thing we must do is point our families to Christ, who died for them and now calls us and them in humility to build our house upon Jesus, the solid rock of Christ, not the sinking sand of worldly wisdom and principles. And as we work to build our homes, God desires for us, we must persistently plead for God's sovereign help in building our homes for his glory. And this is where I often fail. I often try to grind out the solutions that I believe need to happen in my family without acknowledging that, God, I am powerless to do this without your help. You must build my home, Lord. And I think about the pride in my own heart when I think about Jesus, who even though he was perfect, even though he was without sin, even though he was the son of God, who had all power to do whatever he desired, even he possessed the humility to bow his knees and pray to the Father and ask for the Father to work in his life. And if Jesus can do it, so can I. You might be asking, you know, what does this look like? It could be very simple. It could be praying around the table at dinner time. It could be reading the Bible together before bed. It could be reading Christian books that are allegories for the Christian life. It could be simply asking good questions of your children and providing biblical answers. 
could be singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs together, that the melody of God's word might resonate in their hearts. It could be all of these things, but I believe most of all, the one thing we must do is kneel in prayer before our God so our children see that dad and mom trust Christ to build the home that they live in far more than their human efforts. So the first thing we must do is go to the Lord in humble prayer. But Solomon continues. He says, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. The second thing we must have is dependent protection. We must trust in it. Brothers and sisters, it seems that every time I get on social media, I am confronted with one central reality. I see the sadness and the sin and the brokenness and the death around me. And I know the truth of my life is that everything I have could crumble in an instant. A tornado could reduce my home to rubble. A house fire could burn all of my possessions along with my family to ash. A plague could take their lives. A home invasion could turn a quiet and happy home into a crime scene. And it does for millions, if not of people every day. Could sit and diligently clean and polish our shotguns and sit on our porches waiting for the thief to come in the night. But when he does come and I pull that trigger, whether it's a clean shot or a misfire, is all in the hands of the Lord. Look what he says. Unless the Lord watches over us, we stay awake in vain. The watchman watches in vain unless he depends on the Lord's protection. Solomon calls us to depend on Christ's faithful protection of our homes. And the good news for us is if we believe in the gospel, we believe the truth that all people are sinners, and yet God is a loving God who sent Jesus, his sinless son, to die upon the cross to pay for those sins that anybody who trusts and believes in him can run free from their sins and they may have eternal life and forgiveness of those sins and live life with God. If we believe in the gospel, we have a great, great hope because we can trust that ultimately nothing can truly take our lives or the lives of our believing children, that we are safe and secure in Christ. And now I'm not telling anyone to throw away their guns probably get run out of the church if I did that. I'm not telling you to unlock your doors at night. I'm not telling you to stop taking your vitamins or eating healthy. And I'm certainly not telling you to disable your smoke detectors. All of those things are good. I'm only asking you that through the humility of prayer to trust more in Christ's ability to secure your family's future than you do anything else. More than the pistol that's in your holster or the security system that keeps your family safe at night. Solomon says we must trust in the Lord's protection. He continues on to verse 2. It says, It is in vain that you rise early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. The last principle I believe that Solomon tells us to build our homes upon, and this is certainly not exhaustive, it's simply what's in the text, is confident provision. And Solomon uses a phrase that truly, truly pierced my heart this week as I was pouring over this psalm. He says that, that many of us rise early and go to bed late all to eat the bread of anxious toil. The picture here is that of a person 
who's sort of stuck in this perpetual loop of staying up late and rising early, working so hard only to eat the bread of of his toil, and in this anxiety, getting up and returning to work and doing it all over again every day, day in and day out. And that's good. Hard work is good. But it says that he does it with an anxious spirit, unable to truly rest. Now, if you're a parent, you know that something changes when you have children, does it not? When you have children, your life changes forever. Gone are the days of frivolously spending how you'd like and doing what you'd want. Now you must decide between new golf clubs and Timmy's cleats, right? Or a cruise with your wife and Jenny's braces, right? We have to make those decisions. You can no longer sleep in when you prefer, which is hard. I feel like I haven't slept in a decade, but... You know, most of us are up at a crisp 6.30 in the morning, even on Saturday mornings, if not earlier. Add to all this the, the lack of time, the pervasive anxiety of keeping our family safe and fed, and the lack of sleep, and you have a recipe for some very ornery, very overworked, very exhausted, very overwhelmed parents, do you not? But look what Solomon tells us. He says that the Lord gives to his beloved sleep. He gives to his beloved rest. Parents, do you know that if you are exhausted inside, you are not a very good parent? And I'm not throwing shade. I'm looking in the mirror. When you are exhausted in your soul, it is very hard to be the parent that God calls you to be. Often as an adult, I realize that I am much like my son Israel, only I'm not sleeping in a bed. I'm walking through life, but I'm constantly tossing and I'm turning in anxiety and stress, and I'm crying out to God. I'm saying, Lord, I'm tired. Lord, I'm hungry. Lord, I'm exhausted. Lord, I'm overwhelmed. Lord, I'm itchy. No, it doesn't happen. But I'm saying all of these same things that my son was saying to me and I can't rest and I look at my home and it's, it's not the way I want it to be and I, and I cry out, God, the laundry, Lord, the laundry. Don't you see the laundry, Lord? And I look at my life and I ask the question, what will happen if I just stop and rest? And my heart tells me, Jameson, all these problems will still be here if you rest, so you might as well keep going. But there's a different voice speaking to me from this text. It's as if Jesus is saying, you rest, let me work. You rest, let me work. The point here is that Christ can provide rest for us, a rest that we could never procure for ourselves, that Christ can work even while exhausted parents rest, certainly if we are parents of prayer. Parents, there is a weariness, a tiredness that cannot be healed by all the sleep in the world, and I know that resonates with someone. There is an exhaustion of the soul that cannot be healed by all of the sleep in the world. 
There is a weariness of the soul that could not be remedied by a dozen weekend vacations. There's a fatigue that does not subside when the to-do list is complete, the kids are safe in bed, and all of the meals are prepped for the week. It is still there. And to the tired parent, of which I am one, the rest you need can only be found in Christ. The rest you need will only be found in Christ. In Jesus, we no longer have to eat the bread of anxious toil. We no longer need to be sort of these lethargic parental zombies who are aimlessly shuffling through life, fueled on coffee and probably spite. We can rest. We can go to the Lord in prayer and we can acknowledge, Jesus, your word tells me that you are the bread of life. But the book of Hebrews says that you are my rest. The Gospels tell me that you have living water, Lord, that can refresh my soul. And so, Lord, I come to you and I ask for rest. Isaiah tells me that if I look to you, I can mount up on eagle's wings and I can soar even when I fear weary. Lord, you be my rest. There's a reason that Jesus taught his disciples to go to God and ask him, give us this day our daily bread. Which is a way of asking the Lord, deliver unto us what we need to thrive today. Lord, I need something that I know only you can give me. I must go to Christ and I must say, I and my family will have what I need in you and what I need, I am confident that you will provide. So we must go to him in humble prayer, dependent upon his protection and confident in his provision for us. And there's a beautiful thing that happens when we do. Jesus begins to transform our hearts and our minds because we're resting in him and we slow down enough for him to speak to us and Jesus ultimately begins to change our perspective on how we look at parenting and how we view our children. Here's mistake number two. It's seeing from the wrong perspective. In verse three, Solomon says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. I love that Solomon begins this verse with the word behold. It's as if he's saying, listen, open your eyes, behold, look, see, focus, watch, see this from God's perspective. And I don't believe it's a false statement to say that our current culture does not value children the way that the Lord does. We live in a throwaway culture whose mantra is follow your heart, live your truth, and above all else, let no one drag you down, including your children. It's a sad day that we throw away our children. Sadly, we even rip them from the womb at times while God speaks to us that they are the fruit of the womb. Imagine a farmer working hard for his harvest and then throwing it away. Our world looks at children as a burden and I hate to say that at times my own heart does as well. We look at children as something that takes, but God says, no, they are not a burden to you, parent. They are a blessing to you. But the children are your 
heritage. They are your future. And ultimately, they are not a result of human effort at all, but a special gift that God gives to us. They're given to us so that we might have someone to pass down our faith and our hopes and everything that we are to, that they might continue in our lineage. They are our future. They are the fruit we hope to see growing amongst us. That's why at Convergent Church, I know sometimes people bring their kids in, and this is me going off on a tangent, but sometimes people bring their kids in and they go, oh my God, what will happen if my kid is loud during service? Praise God. Praise God for the sound of children. May we never be a church that is frustrated by the sounds and agitations of children when they are the future of God's people. All right, reel it in, Pastor. Whether or not we see our children as a burden or a blessing has major ramifications on how we parent. So let's go back to that night that I yelled at my son Israel. I know for a fact that in my heart, I was seeing my son as a burden and not a blessing. I wasn't seeing that he was a gift given from a caring God to bring joy and blessing into my life. And so when the tension mounted and I came to my wit's end and I got to the end of my frustrations, what came from my heart was wrath. But how might I have responded? How might I have spoken to my son if I had been seeing things from God's perspective? If I could have stood in the doorway and remembered, no, Jameson, this child is a blessing. He is your heritage. This little man is your future that his presence in your life, though at times it can be frustrating, it is making you more like Jesus. And because God loves you, he will not spare you from that, but he will call you deeper. He'll press you into it. This young man in your life is giving you a, a greater appreciation for the mercy and the steadfastness and the faithfulness of a loving God towards you. That through being this child's father, you see in greater clarity the love of God for you. If I could have thought about that, I would have said, Israel, I love you so much. And I'm thankful that you're my son. But I've come up here many times, and I'm admittedly frustrated. But that tells me something. It tells me that something's wrong with you. What can I do to help you? And I know exactly what my son would have said. He would have looked at me with tired eyes and he would have said, could you just lay with me? That's what he would have said, right, buddy? Would you just lay with me, dad? You see, the real reason I was upset wasn't because I was overtired or offended or that my authority as his father was being challenged. I was inconvenienced in that moment. And the inconvenience of having to deal with my child's feelings so late at night was more than my self-centered heart could handle. And when I thought about this, I spoke to myself and I said, Jameson, how many times have you reached out to your heavenly father and pled, Father, won't you wrap me in your everlasting arms? Father, won't you condescend from your great place in heaven to come and be with me? Won't you come down here with me into my anxieties and fears and be with me? 
Father, won't you come and calm my anxious heart? And I cannot remember a time where he has not. And so I've learned another painful lesson 10 years into parenting to slow down, to listen, to cherish my boys, and to fight to see them as blessings, not as burdens. And I'm sure that if I do not, I will be choking the life-giving reality that is a faithful father in the home. And that I may not see the abundant fruit of the presence of faithful sons that I ultimately may find myself cultivating the wrong potentials. And that's our final mistake for the day, cultivating the wrong potentials. Let's read verses 4 and 5. Solomon says, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And so God's word tells us that children are not only a blessing in our future, but they have an immense potential. Solomon says that each child is like an arrow in the hands of a great warrior and that we are blessed to have many. Our culture would say the perfect family is two to three children, but God says, no, fill your quiver. Have many children. This is a blessing to you. And he calls our children arrows. Now for an arrow to hit its mark, many factors have to be taken into account, but two are of the utmost importance. The first is the sharpness of an arrow. It does not matter how straight I shoot an arrow. If the arrow that I am shooting is blunt, it may hit its target, but it will fall to the ground. It will not stick. And secondly, it does, if, if a warrior does not aim well and guide the arrows to its intended destination, it could miss its mark entirely. And sadly, many of us, myself included, often fail in these two categories. We fail to sharpen our children well for a godly life. We do not hone them with the keen edge of intentional and gentle discipline. And in our efforts to get everything done, we often leave them to guide themselves to whatever destination they choose. On Saturday, I had some friends coming over. It was one of those times where dad actually got to do something he wanted. I had some friends coming over and I was hastily rushing through mowing the lawn because I was ashamed of how my yard looked and I didn't want people to see. <laughs> mowing away all the weeds. But as I was mowing the lawn, Asher came up to me and he did the thing where he waves. See, I mow my lawn not only with the loud lawnmower, but I put my AirPods in too. So no one can get my attention unless they come and virtually die in front of the lawnmower. Um, but he gets up and he waves his hands and frustratingly, I take my AirPods out and I turn the lawnmower off. And he said, Dad, there's an issue. <laughs> he doesn't speak this eloquently, five year old, but Dad, there's an issue between me and my brother. Something's going on. And do you know what I said frustratingly to my son? I said, I don't have time for this. You'll have to figure that out for yourself. And as I'm used upon that, at that moment, what message am I sending to my child when they come to me with life's problems and I say I do not have time? The first thing I'm telling them is you are not important. You are not important to me. This lawn and what I'm doing later is more important than you. 
The second thing I'm telling them is that your problems don't matter to me. That the things I'm dealing with are more important than your issues. And number three, you're going to have to find life's answers for yourself. That is the message I'm giving. Now, from my vantage point, it was truly an insignificant little squabble. But from a five-year-old's view, this is a big issue. He's thinking, I have this relational issue with my brothers, and Dad, I need you to come handle it. I need wisdom to figure this out. He needed me to sharpen and shape him to handle this and to point him in the right direction. My boys need my help to be godly, faithful boys so that they can grow into being godly and faithful men who, like arrows, are shot out into the world to be kingdom-minded, to change the world for Jesus, to spread the gospel. And I recognize that it all starts in these small, seemingly insignificant moments. It starts by teaching them how to treat their neighbor, how to treat their siblings, teaching them what's true, teaching them how to believe, what to believe, teaching them how to pray, teaching them how to trust in God, and showing them the works of Jesus and the character of Jesus, even in these small moments. Right now I'm thinking of the moment where Jesus was busy ministering and his disciples were gathered around him and children came up to him. And his disciples got in front of Jesus and said, no, 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 the master is far too busy for you. No, 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 the master has other more important things to do. No, 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 the master has more important people to minister to. And do you remember what Jesus said? He said, let the children come to me. He said, suffer the children to come to me. And then he looked at them and he said, the kingdom is like these. That in order to be in the kingdom, you must be like these children with their kinds of faith. And when I do not take the time to sharpen and guide my children, I believe I am actively working against the character that Jesus wants me to display. And so parents... Without your time and intentionality, with not only in personal issues, but in all issues, certainly issues of faith, know that honing your children in small matters of life will ultimately affect whether or not they live a faithful life with God and in God or not. And so we must cultivate the right potentials. Be intentional because there's a great promise for you in this. Look at how Solomon ends the psalm. He says, He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. What Solomon tells us is that when we do this, when we are intentional in our parenting, when we care for our children, that our children will ultimately want to stick by our sides. Now, they might not want to live in our house, which would be a good thing, but <laughs> my kids are convinced they're going to live in my house forever. They cry when we say we're going to send them out at some point. It's okay. But they'll want to stick by our side. It says that they'll defend us when we face our enemies. That they will not leave us to the ravages of old age. That, that hopefully, if we are parents who look to the Lord and trust in God and raise our children intentionally, that they will not dump us in a nursing home. But maybe they'll make a room for dad to stay at some point. Hopefully mom's there too, I don't know. We won't be lonely in our twilight years because our children will value what we've done for them. They won't desert us, but will care for us. And 
care for us perhaps even in the ways that we've cared for them. They will be our defense. You see, when Solomon wrote this psalm, there were no retirement funds. There were no retirement homes. There were no 401ks. There was none of that. Parents had to rely on their children in their latter years of life. And Solomon is reminding us to be the kind of parent that our children would ultimately want to be friends with later in life. They're not, don't be friends with them now, be their parent, but later on. We want to be the kinds of parents that they would want to stick by and defend and have vibrant, healthy relationships with when we're 50, 60, perhaps younger. Parents that they would want to care for. And as I review my, my parenting as of late, I'm not sure that I am that kind of parent. But I hope that I can be. And so I started today with a, a question, why is parenting so hard? It just is. <laughs> I don't have a good answer. It just is. And I think it always will be. But nothing worth doing is ever easy. We know that, right? Nothing worth doing is ever easy. Building a house is difficult. So is tilling and planting and harvesting a field. Farming is difficult. War is difficult. Battles, hard fought and won, are difficult. And all of these could be analogies for parenting. But all of these things, when done with the Lord's help, with the proper perspective in the right way, are far from impossible and perhaps can even be enjoyable. But without Christ at the center, it is all meaningless. Hard work can produce a massive and gorgeous house, but it cannot create a happy home. A passionate entrepreneur can build a successful business, but cannot, by sheer effort alone, create a good life. Only Christ can make parenting worthwhile. And so my charge to you is to look to Jesus and to ask yourself this question, how do you see your children? Are they a blessing or a burden? And if you're like me and you've struggled with that and you say, yes, there's, there's days where I view my children as burden and not blessing, know that Jesus can remedy that that his word can speak to that, that his word can transform our perspective. And all we have to do is go to him in humble prayer and simply ask him, Jesus, make me the father you want me to be. Jesus, make me the mother you want me to be. For you children who have been listening this entire time as I beat up your parents and tell them they're terrible, they're not, they're great, a lot of them. Children, you too can go to the Lord and say, Jesus, help me to be the son that you want me to be. Help me to be the daughter that you want me to be. Even in our latter ages, as we struggle to love our parents well, we can go to the Lord in humble prayer. And when we humble ourselves before him, he has promised us that he will work and he will do what only he can do. And so I pray today that we would be people who live counter-cultural lives, who would look at children would see them as a blessing and not a burden, who would rejoice in their rambunctious nature their crazy energy, the distractions, all of it. All of it is working for God's will. It is honing us into Jesus' image. So let us rejoice. Amen? Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you. Lord, we thank you most importantly that you are a faithful Father. Father, that in all the ways in parenting that we fail, Lord, you do not. You are holy, you are good, you are righteous, you never make a mistake. Your discipline is perfect and your heart is always for us. And so, Lord, as we acknowledge that we are not perfect parents, that we fail, that we get weary, that we are tired, that sometimes we see life from the wrong perspective, Lord, we come to you because we know that you can change that. We know that you, Jesus, can give us the rest that our soul needs. We know that you, Father, can give us the perspective that our eyes and our minds and our hearts and our souls need to see that you might be glorified in our homes. That when people look at the homes of Convergent Church, they would say, wow, what a place. That's a place I would love to live in. Wow, look at that house. It's not perfect. The lawn's not perfectly manicured. Perhaps the gutters might be hanging off a little bit, but look at the people. Look at the atmosphere. See the children. They have joy. See mom and dad as they put their hope in God. Look at this home that is thriving spiritually. Lord, help us to be like that. Lord, help me to be like that. That you might be glorified. God, not that we would simply have great families to have great families, but that we would have vibrant and thriving and wonderful families so that you would receive glory in that, that we would acknowledge that it is not us building the home, but that it is you, Lord, that you are working in it. So we love you, we praise you, we thank you for your work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.